Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. And now it's time to play America's favorite game of disloyalty to the state, If This Be Treason. And here's your host, Kyone Wolf. Thank you, Johnny. And without further ado, let's meet today's contestants. From ancient Rome, in the time of Julius Caesar, Lucius Sergius Catiline. A native of Torrington, Connecticut, but best known for Harper's Ferry, Virginia, John Brown. And from Luthersville, Maryland, an IT professional for a large financial services company, Doris Fenton Siddensticker. We flipped a coin and... Excuse me. What is it, Doris? I I can't help but notice that these other two men have swords and, and guns, and I don't know. I just feel a little out of place on this panel. Well, there's no law against that. Or is there? Let's find out. We flipped a coin, and Catalina, you'll go first. According to 100 people we surveyed, what are the most fun things to do right before committing treason? Well, the deputies having been summoned and the fort having been secured and a flat plane having been located and winter having arrived and the signal having been given and the centurions having killed the farmers. Too long. It goes to you, John Brown. What's a fun thing to do right before treason? Uh, eat some jerky. Who you calling jerky? Doris, it's down to you. Fun things before treason. Gee, let's see. I would say maybe pamper myself with a spa treatment. She's right. Ten points for Doris. Seems like you got a little treason in ya. Oh, I don't think so. Now it's time for the fast money round. John Brown, what's the most likely cause of your criminal behavior? A terrible gathering in my head. Mm, Cataline, what's the best food to eat on a day of treason? Mm, olives, three snails, beetroot, and the udder of a young sow. Doris, what's a solid justification for treason? Well, have you seen what they're charging for shoes these days? Rising shoe prices. Yes, it looks like you're the winner. Johnny, what do we have for Doris? Guyon, Doris will be hanged at noon unless the president pardons her. See, this is why I didn't even want to play this. We're out of time. Come back tomorrow to see if Doris gets pardoned or is feasted on by crows. And now he charged the stage at a recent performance of Hamilton. Colin McEnroe. I couldn't help myself. I kept saying, that's treason. You can't do that. Uh, all right. So, in fact, this word treason, it gets bandied about a lot. You hear it a lot. And in fact, I think if you went out on the street, we should have done this. We should have done what we call Vox. Gone out on the street, just asked people what treason is. Or if they know what treason is, I think almost every American would say, yes, of course I know what treason is. And then they would describe something to you, right, that, that it would have something to do with uh, undermining the state or breaking some vow that you took when you were sworn into some office or, or something. Everybody would have some working definition of treason. The only problem with that is it's probably not the right working definition of treason. And I include myself in this category. I, I, I know for a fact, because of things that I've said on the air in 2017, that I have been misusing this term. So we're going to see if we can nail it down a little bit today. Obviously, one of our incentives for doing this is that uh, the word is flying around in the air these days. It's been applied to Michael Flynn. It's even been 
fleetingly applied to President Trump himself. So it makes some sense, maybe, first of all, to understand the history of it um, and also the legal applications of it. So we're going to do that. We've got terrific guests to do that uh, with us, uh, joining us from the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, uh, Jeremy Duda, reporter for the Arizona, Arizona Capital Times and the author of this, If This Be Treason, The American Rogues and Rebels Who Walk the Line Between Dissent and Betrayal. Also joining us by phone, Carlton Larson, professor of law at UC Davis and an expert on the Constitution and American legal history, author of the forthcoming book, Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. So, um, we should say, first of all, obviously, that this word does go back well before the founding of the American Republic. It was used all over the place. You even heard in the introduction, if you were a young Latin student like me, you might have had to translate Cicero's Catalinian conspiracy speeches, um, and which were basically all about treason uh, and sedition against the government. Um, but do we really understand this exactly? So, um, Jeremy Duda, let's start with the fact that Treason is, I think, is it the? I think it might be the only crime that's actually defined and named in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, yes, that, there's a couple of other crimes that are mentioned in the Constitution, but treason is the only one that was specifically named. And the framers of the Constitution did this. This was a very intentional decision to put it in the Constitution in a way that it couldn't be tinkered with by Congress. Um, the under uh, Great Britain, uh, the definition of treason had been much uh, broader and expansive. They obviously had some uh, kind of experience running to follow that. Technically, they all the all the uh, revolting colonists had committed treason, and they wanted to make sure that uh, the new government under the new constitution wouldn't really be able to abuse, uh, you know, treason laws against its citizens. And so they defined it very uh, narrowly as uh, levying war against the United States or providing our enemies with aid and comfort by adhering to them. And so, Carlton Larson, sometimes things that are in the Constitution are interpreted a little bit more broadly or expansively, or we, we, we start to understand what those words mean in, in a broader or larger context. Has that happened with treason? Does treason now have a slightly expanded legal definition, or are we still at the letter of the law in the Constitution? Uh, we're still very much at the letter of the law <clears throat> Excuse me, in the Constitution, the uh... Um, the term colloquially, as, as you know, some of your excerpts suggested, uh, is, is used much more broadly. Other countries define the crime uh, more narrowly. But for legal purposes in the United States, treason has a very narrow, uh, specific, and, and precise definition, which, if anything, uh, is even narrower now than it was at the time uh, it was written. And um, we should say a little bit more about what Jeremy said, too. I mean, one reason for writing it narrowly, I mean, sometimes when something's named in the Constitution, it's because, uh, you know, people want to use it a lot. But it was, as Jeremy's suggesting, it, it makes more sense that it's the opposite, right? That they didn't, they didn't want people broadening the definition of treason. Yeah, exactly. The concern is that this is, you know, typically a weapon uh, that could be used against political enemies. Right, um, you know, people in power imagine that that opposition to them is somehow treason against the country, and that's a very tempting thing uh, for people to imagine. Uh, and so this really makes that very clear that um, you know political opposition uh, is is not a crime, uh, and that um, that this sort of horrific charge of treason should only be used uh, in the in the most narrow circumstances where where it truly is is appropriate. 
Although that whole business of somebody who's opposed to you, I mean, pretty quickly in the life of the American Republic, Carlton, we see the Alien and Sedition Acts where the Federalists basically, since it didn't meet a constitutional standard of treason, they really did start defining opposition to the government as criminal, just using a different kind of law. Uh, yeah, so there they used um, you know, specifically a, a sedition law, which uh, also grew out of English law. Uh, they actually narrowed the sedition law f- uh, somewhat from its uh, common law understanding in uh, England, and, and that was fiercely debated at the time, people who thought that this was consistent with the First Amendment and people who thought uh, that it wasn't. Uh, you know, the tide of history has clearly gone uh, on the side that this was not uh, an appropriate act. No. So, Jeremy, I mean, in in a way, this constitutional caution, it kind of worked, right? A lot of people are conversationally accused of treason, but very few people have had charges of treason brought against them. Is that accurate? Right. I mean, there have been, I think, from what I've read, something between 30 and 40 actual cases of treason in American history. And um, we actually haven't seen someone convicted of treason since, I believe, uh, the early 50s. It was an uh, American citizen of uh, a natural-born American citizen of Japanese descent who'd been in uh, Japan during World War II. He was uh, convicted of treason for mistreating American POWs over there. But that was the last person, you know, more than 60 years ago who was actually convicted of the crime. The last person charged with it, I believe, was uh, an American American in uh, 2006 who had uh, joined the Taliban or joined uh, Al Qaeda was doing uh, propaganda videos uh, and things like that for them. He was charged with them, which is the first charge in decades, and uh, he never ended up standing trial. He was ultimately killed by a drone strike in uh, Pakistan. So uh, who knows how that would have played out? But it's a, uh, I think you see few charge of this because it's a pretty difficult crime to uh, convict people of. That that constitutional definition also includes some pretty strict uh, requirements for what it takes to convict someone of treason. And that includes uh, that the unless there's an open confession in court, which obviously would be unlikely if someone values their life, the, uh, o- the acts of treason have to be witnessed by two individuals who can testify to it in court. And that, uh, that gets pretty uh, difficult sometimes. Um, so let's talk about that, about how hard it is to prove and establish. Yeah, there, there is that burden of the two witnesses in court. But um, Carlton, also, I, I think it's worth talking a little bit about what these words specifically mean. So treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So uh, that's a very specific definition, but I'm not quite sure I know what that means. I mean, I don't know, when Jane Fonda goes over to North Vietnam and kind of hangs around with uh, North Vietnamese and has her picture taken, is she adhering to enemies of the United States? Sure. So, I mean, this is uh, one aspect of the Constitution where it's taking words directly from English law and that the terms levying war uh, and adhering to their enemies actually come from a, the English Treason Statute of 1351. Uh, which was uh, an early British attempt to actually limit uh, the crime of treason. Uh, that had a bunch of other provisions in it as well, and the framers chose only two of them, the levying war provision and the adhering to their enemies provision. Uh, so uh, the phrases are sort of interpreted uh, in light of, uh, to some extent, the British precedents that interpret those phrases. Uh, and under that, levying war essentially means uh, you know, raising some type uh, of armed force um, probably with you know with the intent to overthrow uh, the government. There's some debate as, as to exactly you know how broadly uh, essentially an insurrection has to be for it to count as levying war. Um, but there has to be some use of force against the United States, and this is essentially the treason 
that we think of in terms of sort of internal or, uh, insurrections. Uh, by contrast, the, the enemy's provision uh, deals with uh, foreign conflicts. Uh, that is, enemies are all, always people sort of outside of uh, the United States. And that is uh, limited to uh, countries with whom we are either in an open uh, war or a declared war. So there's actually a war going on uh, between the two countries. Uh, or it could be, um, you know, possibly a group like Al-Qaeda, uh, such as the, as the Adam Gadan uh, indictment that uh, Jeremy mentioned. Uh, so that um, limits it, it quite a bit. So the question then would be with Jane Fonda whether you know, North, North Vietnam was an enemy uh, during the Vietnam War. I, th I think it was. Uh, we clearly were at, were at war there. Um, the more tricky question is whether her actions you know, actually constituted treason by giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Uh, and I, I'm not deeply familiar with what she did there, but from what I've read about it, it sounds like uh, she was perhaps misguided, perhaps very foolish, uh, and went there uh, hoping to help end the war. But it didn't seem that she went there with a direct treasonous intent to uh, provide aid uh, directly to the North Vietnamese and against the United States. Right. If we're uh, going to interpret that uh, phrase to mean essentially help them fight the war, help them fight their side of the war, uh, I don't think that you can get Jane Fonda on that one, uh, at least probably not. Um, Carlton, one thing to sort of mention also is uh, treason historically, even prior to the founding uh, of, of the American Republic, it, it was a very, very dark stain, right? I mean, this, this word still has a certain toxic power, uh, but, but earlier on it was the kind of thing that didn't even limit itself to one generation. Right. So treason was, was distinctive in English law for, for two reasons. One, it meant that you essentially ceased to exist as a legal person uh, under the doctrine of corruption of blood. Uh, and so it meant that you, uh, your, your children could not inherit your estate, uh, for example, or if, and couldn't inherit via a grandfather, uh, that your line of descent has essentially been cut out. Uh, and that essentially imposes penalties on future generations because of the crime uh, of the father. Uh, but the other was it was punished differently. Uh, most in the 18th century, most felonies were, were punished by hanging. Uh, by contrast, with treason, you were uh, tied to a cart, you were dragged along the, uh, the road, you were then uh, partially hanged while you're still alive, your uh, bowels were cut out, uh, they were burned uh, in front of you, uh, your limbs were cut off, uh, your genitals were cut off, and then your um, head was stuck uh, on a stake. And this was not always uh, for the kinds of standards we're looking at in the Constitution, right? I mean, you could be accused of treason for a much lesser offense. Yeah, so in England, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the primary uh, methods of, of treason was what they called compassing the death of the king, uh, which we don't have uh, in the United States. And it also included other things, for example, like uh, sleeping with the, uh, the daughter of the king's eldest son. Uh, that was high treason in England. Uh, so it was counterfeiting uh, as, a, as a form of treason. Um, so Jeremy Duda, let's go back to the early days of the American experiment. So, And I think probably it's true that as the government settles in and becomes more solid, maybe uh, it has a little bit more confidence. But early on, there were people asking a lot of the same questions about this government that were asked leading up to the American Revolution, right? I mean, one of the first instances of people being charged and even convicted uh, of treason is the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, yeah, yeah. And there obviously uh, back in the, you know, those days, the early days of the Republic, there was a lot of dispute about the nature and future 
of the country, of the Constitution, of what we were supposed to be. And a lot of those disagreements very quickly devolved uh, into uh, accusations of treason. I think you, you mentioned earlier the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts. I think it was probably at least one of the earliest attempts by the government to do so, where uh, basically attacks against uh, members of the ruling party of the Federalists, of uh, you know President Adams and uh, his allies in Congress, were basically thought by the ruling Federalists to be Federalists to be treasonous. So they passed this law in order to crack down, to basically silence their opponents uh, for this uh, allegedly traitorous uh, words. We see the good traders words, but in the Whiskey Rebellion, you actually do have the use of force to resist taxation. Maybe that's a little bit closer to, uh, to, to something that we could recognize constitutionally as treason. And then we come to 1814. I'm sitting here in Hartford, Connecticut. We've even done a show from the building where these conversations uh, would have taken place. Uh, tell us about the Hartford Convention, Jeremy. Oh, this was a, a fascinating uh, chapter of American history. I cover this in my book, uh, If This Be Treason. And um, basically, you have the Federalists who, during the first uh, you know decade or 12 years or so of uh, the Republic, were firmly in charge and, as we mentioned, very uh, wielded uh, accusation of treason with a very heavy hand against their opponents. Now, in, in the Hartford Convention, the same thing basically happened to them. At this point, they had been, uh, the Federalists had been in the political wilderness for uh you know, about 14 years or so since the election of uh, Thomas Jefferson and his uh, Democratic Republicans in uh, Congress. And so they had a long list of grievances that had been piling up for years. They'd been gradually losing power, um, losing power in Congress. New, they were being kind of drowned out by the addition of new states, especially slave states in the West. Um, they could no longer uh, get the vice presidency because of the 12th Amendment. And then you have the War of 1812, which really hit uh, New England hard. It was very uh, dependent on maritime commerce, especially with uh, you know, Great Britain. And so their, so their economic lifeblood had been choked off. They had constant clashes with uh, James Madison's administration about providing soldiers for the war effort, about paying, putting the bill for the war effort. You know, they didn't want to invade Canada. They didn't want to send their troops to do anything except for defend New England if need be, which wasn't necessary really until later in the war. And, you know, once that happened, um, by the time you get to late 1814, all the all the grievances from the war and the grievances from the years before that had piled up to the point where there was a lot of uh, really seditious talk. There were folks even going back, you know, 10 years or so who'd wanted New England to secede from the country. And uh, some of the Federalist leaders in New England saw how much anger there war was and partly, partly to express that and partly to kind of be a safety valve and kind of sideline the more radical members, they uh, convened the Hartford Convention, which produced kind of this long list of grievances against the Adams or the Madison and Jefferson administrations, uh, produced a bunch of uh, proposed constitutional amendments that they felt like would maybe recalibrate the uh, balance of power in their favor. And uh, But one of the problems for them is that this was, the proceedings were secret. There wasn't a lot of records from what happened inside. And folks... Uh, Democratic Republicans and others for years and years afterwards accused them of treason, accused them of plotting secession at this uh, convention, and none of that happened. Uh, as I mentioned, mentioned uh, they were trying to sideline the radicals. They actually sent, intentionally sent mostly moderate Federalists to this gathering, but uh, that didn't really that didn't really do a lot to kind of remove this uh, stench that had been st uh, attached to them for really generations to come. 
Um, Carlton, I think you agree with uh, Jeremy that this wasn't, well, at least what we know, the observable, recordable part of the Hartford Convention, which was not entirely a public event, didn't seem to rise to the level or sink to the level of treason? Yeah, that's right. It clearly wasn't adhering to enemies of the United States, so the only possible charge would be levying war uh, against the United States. And it doesn't seem there was actual any levying of war. No actual force was used. Um, uh, there's a sort of an important distinction in treason law that conspiracy to commit treason or even cons- you know, conspiracy to levy war is not uh, itself treason. Uh, and so it seems like at most there might have been some type of conspiracy to do something in the future. Uh, but since they didn't actually do anything, um, it wouldn't be treason. But, Carlton, you do believe that. I mean, it's sort of interesting because, as Jeremy has sketched out, not that many people have ever been charged with treason. But a lot of people could have been charged with treason. And, and I think we can start with the South during the Civil War, right? Right. Clearly, I mean, uh, all the people who were in arms uh, on the Confederate side, all the people who aided and supported that, um, were all levying war against the United States. Uh, and one of the, the weird things about treason is um, the more people that commit it, uh, the less likely it is to be punished. Uh, that mm-hmm. is, if there's only a small group of people, it's easy to perhaps, and this is true in England too, uh, to you know, say, uh, punish a few ringleaders. Uh, but when you have a massive insurrection like you have on, on the scale of the Civil War, uh, what you want, most want to do is to end it uh, and to bring people back into the fold. Uh, and you don't do that if you are essentially executing people who participated in it. So um, you know, even Jefferson Davis, who was seen as probably the most likely target uh, of a treason prosecution uh, was not prosecuted. Uh, and so uh, after the, the, the rebellion is suppressed, the, the main goal uh, really isn't so much vengeance, uh, but looking forward. Um, how do we you know, bring people back in, uh, restore harmony, restore sort of a sense of unity? And that was true after the revolution, too. Um, I'm finding people, a lot of people in my book, um, arch Tories, uh, who uh, ultimately come back and take high positions uh, in the federal government. The prosecutor in the Whiskey Rebellion cases was actually a Tory who had fled to England uh, during the American Revolution. Um, But he was allowed back and ultimately um, ended up being the one prosecuting the Whiskey Rebels. All right. We're talking about treason, uh, and we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more of Carlton Larson, more of Jeremy Duda. We'll be adding one more guest to the conversation a little bit later. Uh, So stay with us. Then its race of life had run when stricken by the bloody hand of treason. We're talking about treason, uh, and to help us, we have excellent guests uh, joining us from KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona. Jeremy Duda, reporter for the Arizona Capital Times and the author of If This Be Treason, The American Rogues and Rebels Who Walk the Line Between Dissent and Betrayal. Also joining us by phone, Carlton Larson, professor of law at UC Davis and an expert on the Constitution and American legal history, author of the forthcoming book, Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. Um, Let's we're going to sort of move into the 20th century uh, in just a second. But as we do that, Jeremy, one thing that um, is interesting to ponder anyway, I mean, we're going to be talking about Edward Edward Snowden a little bit later in this segment. uh, But you could you could you could even start with John Brown, who we heard about in the intro. There's somebody who actually was, I believe, executed for treason. Um, Does it does it help to have like a good motivation? Does it help to have to be pure at heart or to have some principle that you're doing this for? Um, I guess it would depend on who you ask. I mean, there's a lot of folks who if you're I suppose if you're acting out of um, 
like truly, uh, you know, deeply held convictions, they will uh, kind of forgive a lot of trans- transgressions. I mean, uh, look at Snowden, of course, that, you know, a lot of folks, uh, you know, consider in this country consider him a traitor. But, of course, he has a lot of supporters, mainly because, you know, they really agree with what he did. They feel like it was best for the country that he uh, released uh, all that classified information. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how this uh, plays out in the 20th century. Um, And so, Carlton Larson, one of the things we know about World War II is that some of the prominent cases had to do not with people engaging in armed sedition or anything like that, but really against people who were effectively propagandists for the other side. So tell us about those Tokyo Roses and Axis Sallies. Yeah, sure. So there were prosecutions of American citizens who had uh, essentially served as propaganda uh, uh, spokespeople for uh, either uh, the Japanese or uh, the Germans, or to some extent, in the case of Ezra Pound uh, with with uh, Mussolini's Italy. Uh, and these are people who didn't, you know, actually fight in the war or provide, uh, you know, arms or things like that. But they used uh, their English language skills to provide, you know, simply, you know, better propaganda uh, that from on the side of the enemies than they otherwise would have had. And so. Um, those were prosecuted as uh, cases of giving aid and comfort uh, to the enemy, and I think that's that's largely right. Um, that the aid and comfort uh, can take the form of of doing things like that in the same way it could take the form of simply, you know, writing a big check to the enemy. Uh, it doesn't have to actually be a, you know, specifically militaristic action to count. Um, we do have a. You mentioned Ezra Pound. Uh, we do have a caller from uh, Windsor who's asking about the same question. So as long as we're on that subject, Carlton um, Pound is different uh, from Tokyo Rose and Axis Sally in the sense that, to the best of my knowledge, was he, he was accused? Was he ever convicted of treason? No. So he was he was indicted for treason, but he um, essentially was deemed to be insane, and so he spent um, the rest of his life um, until the charge was dropped uh, in uh, an insane asylum, and then. Uh, I think moved back to Italy, um, so that case never went to trial. Um, and had it gone to trial, it, you know, it might have raised some interesting uh, legal issues. So, um, Jeremy, one of the cases that I think people don't know very much about it. I'm old enough to have lived through this era. Uh, as a fairly young person at that time, uh, most people do associate Richard Nixon with the um, the crimes associated with Watergate. But in fact, during his political ascension, um, the word treason was applied to him. I think maybe even by LBJ himself. Um, exp- tell us about this uh, this thing that happened uh, during, I guess, 1968. Uh, yeah, this was an incident uh, kind of known to history as the Chanel Affair, and it's very much been overshadowed by, of course, you know, Watergate and the crimes that forced him from office. But without the Chanel Affair, he might not have actually become president in the first place. Now, in 1968, of course, you know, the Vietnam War was raging. This was one of the major issues in the campaign. You had Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic nominee, running on a peace platform. And um, Nixon was very concerned that uh, Lyndon Johnson was going to kind of maneuver things in the in the war to help his vice president. He was very worried that, uh, you know, a peace deal would be in, a peace deal would be announced that uh, you know, there'd be a bombing halt. That was a big concern that Johnson would use to facilitate the peace deal. So he was using a uh, uh, speaking with a woman named uh, Anna Chanel, using her as kind of a, uh, a person to communicate with the South Vietnamese, telling them to hold off, not to take uh, not to take the bait, not to uh, agree to Lyndon Johnson's terms for these peace talks he was trying to convene in Paris. And uh, these peace talks looked like they were about to happen just like in the week before the election. And then it all fell apart when the South Vietnamese did an about face and announced that they weren't going to be coming. And 
what uh, LBJ had been learning from intelligence was that someone from the Nixon camp, possibly even Nixon himself, though Johnson didn't know at the time, had been you know, communicating through back channels and urging the uh, urging Saigon to be recalcitrant. And as you mentioned, yes, he did uh, refer to that at one point as uh, treason. He was refer- speaking with to a leading uh, Senate Republican named uh, Everett Dirksen, who was using kind of as a conduit to the Nixon camp and said, you know, they oughtn't be doing this. This is treason. Um, all right. Uh, well, actually, let's we'll finish that one up before we move on and add Joe Walsh to this conversation. So Carlton Larson, uh, we're going to be talking in just a second about uh, Michael Flynn. Is this different? Is what Jeremy just decide, d- described different, uh, uh, what Nixon is alleged to have done in that situation? Well, the one key difference would be there you're actually dealing with uh, a real war. Uh, there, there was no doubt that there was an actual war between you know, the United States and uh, the, the North Vietnamese. So um, the argument for that being treasonous, I think, is, is a stronger argument than it is for Michael Flynn. It's probably not still a winning argument, but I do think it's, it's a little bit stronger. All right. So we're going to move on and talk a little bit about the, uh, how this is being applied in the, in the modern moment. Uh, we're going to add to the conversation Joe Walsh, conservative talk show host of The Joe Walsh Show and former U.S. congressman uh, from Illinois. And before we bring uh, Joe Walsh into the conversation, um, we're going to start with Snowden and then move on to Flynn and Trump and how these things are applied in, in each of these situations. But um, So let's hear Katie Couric uh, interviewing uh, Snowden in Moscow. If you remember what we did to traitors in 1776 and afterwards, we made them president. We're a country that was born from an act of treason against a government that had run out of control. We should always make a distinction that right and wrong is a very different standard than legal and illegal. Every act of progression in our nation's history has involved tension with law. Whether it was the abolition of slavery, whether it was the enfranchisement of women, uh, whether it was the birth of our nation, Laws were broken, and that's because the laws were wrong. What I'm proud of is the fact that every decision that I made, I can defend. All right. So um, it's sort of there's sort of that good intentions uh, argument uh, being made uh, again. So, um, uh, you know, as this gets discussed, um, I'm going to I want to hear from all three of you about this. But uh, but Jeremy, we can start with you as this gets discussed. uh, It it once again, it gets has more to do sometimes with. He broke an oath. He swore not to do something, and he did it, which I'm not sure sinks to the level of treason again. Um, sure. Obviously, uh, Edward Snowden broke the law. There's really no question about that, and he's violated under, you know, indicted under the Espionage Act. But um, whether it was right or wrong is very much a matter of. Uh, you know, opinion, and we've seen uh, we've seen similar cases like this throughout American history, especially when it comes to this leaking of classified information. It very much evokes uh, you know the Pentagon Papers with Daniel Ellsberg, um, earlier case during on the eve of uh, Pearl Harbor when the Chicago Tribune uh, published uh, FDR's war plans for Germany, and these folks, and that was probably had to have been leaked from the War Department, just like Ellsberg had access to this classified information, and Snowden did as well. But they felt like they were getting out information at the American public just needed to know. You know, Ellsberg felt like the public needed to know what had, uh, you know, how their leader, America's leaders had uh, misled the people about uh, what was happening in Vietnam. Uh, the Tribune and the, the people who leaked the uh, information felt like they, people needed to know that FDR was really trying to push America into war while telling people publicly that he was trying to keep us out of it. 
Um, so, Joe Walsh, first of all, welcome to the conversation we're having. I know you've talked about Edward Snowden on your show. What do you make of the argument that he's guilty of treason? Uh, great to be with you. And I suppose I'd, I'd start where, where Jeremy started. It's clear he broke the law. Um, whether he did right or wrong, whether he committed treason, uh, that's got to be decided. Uh I, I agree with Snowden that our history is certainly replete with men and women who've broken the law for a higher or a better cause. Um, that, that's got to be decided by a court of law. Um, Carlton, it seems as though the thing we're missing, once again, is the war. I mean, you know, it's not even just in the instances that Jeremy just described about other kinds of quote-unquote leaking, but a lot of times even with flat-out spying, like Aldrich Ames, or Robert Hansen, the accusations against Julius and, uh, and Ethel Rosenberg, um, you can't have treason without the war. Yeah, that's right. But that doesn't mean that you can't punish it. Um, and that's what things like the Espionage Act uh, are meant to deal with. So even if you think at the height of the Cold War, uh, the Rosenbergs who uh, you know, provided uh, um, nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union, um, they couldn't be executed for treason because we weren't technically at war uh, with the Soviet Union. But that doesn't mean they simply walk free. Um, they could still be punished under uh, provisions meant to deal with uh, releasing uh, sensitive information uh, in ways that are inappropriate. And so uh, I think it's important to remember that just because something isn't treason, uh, you know, doesn't mean that it's that it's an appropriate behavior. Um, and in some ways, we need a word perhaps for something that's you know disloyal but not treason. And I don't know what that word would be, but uh, you know, treachery might be uh, might be close. All right. So um, let's hear a little bit. We've got Joe Walsh uh, in the flesh, so to speak, uh, here on the show. Uh, let's uh, hear him on his show uh, talking uh, about President Trump uh, and Russian hacking. I don't think he fully gets it. This is a, I mean, my God, we're Americans. This is a foreign government got involved in our election. I mean, that's like Russia attacked us. And for Donald Trump to come out and attack our men and women in the CIA, that's almost treasonous. Russia attacks us and Trump attacks the CIA. Man, he ought to be the one calling for an investigation like right now. So, uh, Joe Walsh, first of all, I should say that um, I've made an even more egregious statement on uh, one of the shows on this station. I think I actually said that if it could be proven that any Trump campaign aides were actively involved with R Russia in hacking or otherwise trying to influence the American election, that's treason. I said it as though I knew what I was talking about, <laughs> which I absolutely clearly don't. And now that I've talked to Jeremy and uh, and to Carlton. But, you know, Jer uh, Carlton was saying we needed that intermediary term. Yeah. And so your version of the intermediary term is almost treasonous. Yeah, and, and uh, again, that's uh, talk radio. I get a little ahead of myself on, on, on talk radio. But look, this, I, I, I'm still blown away as a former Republican congressman, as a generally a Trump supporter, um, the lack of outrage on our side that we do know Russia meddled in our election with our election. And, and, and we need to find out if the Trump campaign uh, had any, any – there, there was any collusion, any communication. I mean, I, it just strikes me that this is something that we all should get to the bottom of, and we don't hear enough of that among Trump supporters. 
Um, and I mean, Joe, for people who are not necessarily even following this all that closely, where in your way of thinking are we? How close are we to some kind of independent investigation, either through Congress or kind of 9-11 commission style, some kind of freestanding commission with subpoena power? I think we're moving in that direction. I, I get a sense among a number of my former colleagues in Congress. You saw Daryl Issa come out uh, over the past weekend. I think there is murmuring in the Senate, in the House, uh, that this is going to have to be some sort of independent uh, investigation, that the intelligence community uh, committee in the Senate is, is not going to suffice. Um, so I think that's ultimately where we're going to be, and it should be. I, I think it's it should be where 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 we end up. Um, you know, while we're on that subject, and while I mentioned the 9/11 Commission, Carlton Larson, one of the many ways that your work has surprised me, uh, uh, and it's an area where you part company from Sandy Levinson, who's been on this show recently, is that you say that it is actually possible to commit treason against the United States to meet the U.S. Constitution's definition of treason without actually being a citizen of the United States. Yeah, that's right, and and this is something that uh, a lot of people misunderstand. And uh, treason is a breach of allegiance. Uh, and if you're a U.S. citizen, of course, you have, you have permanent allegiance to the United States uh, wherever you go. Um, but if you are not a U.S. citizen and you are uh, present within this country, uh, while you are here, you owe what is called temporary allegiance, um, meaning you are subject to U.S. treason law. And therefore, if you do something, like, say, leading a, you know, a revolt to overthrow the government or you aid our enemies uh, while you're here, you are subject to uh, U.S. treason law. All right, so we're going to grab a little break here. We're going to be back with more of Joe Walsh and Carlton Larson and Jeremy Duda and more conversation about treason after this. Instead of reason And darkness over light What led you to This act of treason Is there a way To make it right Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Ali Oshinsky, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Jane Fonda. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show can be found at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, our host becomes a guest for a show about the legend of Faust. And now, back to Colin. Never before have I heard of or seen a candidate invite a foreign spy agency to hack America's computers. That borders on treason. Trump appears to be following in the footsteps of other great American traitors like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Both of them got into the White House by engaging in naked acts of treason that involved foreign governments. If this were a Democrat in office and they had this sort of relationship with Russia and this, these many questions, this many questions raised, Oh, the, the, this would be called treason. Treason. It has come to that. Treason. We now have to discuss treason because Donald Trump did something that we've never seen before, something that reasonable people think is treasonous. The voices you heard were Don Lemon, Fareed Zakaria, Lawrence O'Donnell, Tom Hardman, and Congressman Steve Israel, all uh, talking about uh, Donald Trump and using the T word. So, 
Um, (laughs) Jeremy, I feel like we're right back where we started in a way. You've got a whole bunch of guys using the word treason, and I'm not even sure how many, if any of them, know that it's very specifically defined, not in statute, but the U.S. Constitution. Sure. I think uh, most of the times that people use this word, um, you know, they're, they're not referring to what's in the Constitution. They're referring to more kind of the dictionary definition of, um, you know, I think Carlton said a breach of allegiance, kind of a, a kind of a betrayal of the country, more general or garden variety sedition. But um, it, it's a popular word, probably um, one of the most overused words in our political discourse, maybe ranking only below, you know, uh, communist and fascist, probably. But uh, it's a popular way to just brand your opponent just as disloyal or uh, you know, seditious. Um, Joe Walsh, it is a pretty extreme word to be using in the first 40 days uh, of a presidency. But as you were saying in the previous segment, I mean, you're truly alarmed about the behaviors associated with this, not so much adhering specifically to President Trump, but to General Flynn and possibly uh, some of his campaign aides like Paul Manafort or Carter Page or or Roger Stone. How are you feeling these days about the T word and this case? Well, it's it, it's it's interesting. I've, I've I've felt like I'm alone because I don't know that there have been many on my side, any many Republicans or conservatives throwing that word out there. Um, uh, and, and I guess it, it is just the alarm of the entire situation. And your guests are, are more knowledgeable about this than I am. Uh, we know that that Russia, you know, gets involved in other elections. We know that this sort of thing has gone on before, but a, a foreign government meddled with our election. They wanted to get Trump elected. Uh, for all we know, they've got something on President Trump. Um, we've got to get to these answers, and until we get to these answers, I think you're going to hear people on TV and radio continue to throw out the T word and other words because it is a pretty alarming situation. Carlton Larson, um, this isn't unique, right? Other presidents have been, I mean, conversationally, once again, uh, as opposed to charges being brought, conversationally accused of treason. Uh, Not that rare an occurrence, Carlton? No, I mean, I I did some Googling for this for the uh, piece I did for the Washington Post uh, a couple weekends ago, uh, and it's it's very easy to find. um, You just enter a politician's name followed by the word treason in a Google search, uh, and you can probably come up with something. Um, you know, it's tossed out there a lot. Um, I think a lot of times it's, it's just rhetoric. Um, you know, it's meant to say you don't like the person, you disagree with them. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is an accusation of a crime, and I, I do wish people would, would be a little more careful uh, when tossing that term around. Well, so there are crimes uh, that you can commit that don't necessarily fit the description of uh, treason, but sort of get into that area. And Jeremy, one of the things that we've been hearing a little about, a little bit about in connection with some of the uh, behaviors we're talking about here is the Logan Act. This one goes way, way back to the founding of the Republic, right? It goes back to 1798. Uh, some, er, early 1799, shortly after the uh, Alien and Sedition Act, and the Logan Act also, uh, also be a kind of a very overused term in our political discourse uh, these days. This was uh, 
This is a law that Congress passed in uh, January of 1799 to make it illegal for people to basically do conduct freelance diplomacy on behalf of their government to uh, negotiate, to correspond with foreign governments uh, involving, you know, controversies involving the United States. And this was, uh, the origin of this was a uh, Philadelphia doctor named George Logan, who was a Democratic Republican. He was a friend of Thomas Jefferson. You know, in 1798, as we were on the verge of war with France, he decided he was going to go to Paris on his own dime, meet with the country's leaders try and kind of talk him back from the ledge and uh you know that war never came but the federalists weren't uh, particularly grateful for his uh, intercession they felt like this was a uh, usurping the uh, president's authority in foreign policy so they passed this law no one's ever been convicted of it only twice event has anyone as far as i know even been charged with it and neither case went to trial but it's been very useful the logan act as a uh, kind of a uh, kind of a, a weapon to beat your opponents with uh, kind of like much like treason accusations themselves that uh, anytime they uh, people meet with uh, you know to correspond with the foreign government uh, you hear that accusation you've heard it about Trump you've heard about Michael Flynn uh, very recently you've heard it about uh, Tom Cotton and uh, his uh, Republican colleagues in the Senate a couple of years ago Nancy Pelosi uh, the list goes on and on and on and on back going back to um, you know 200 years so, but Joe Walsh, this one seems, this shoe seems to fit a little bit better. I mean, we could call it kind of the one president at a time law. Uh, so when President Obama's president, uh, he is supposed to be conducting uh, foreign policy. If, in fact, uh, General F uh, Flynn gets on the phone to Russia and says, you know, you know those sanctions, well, we could do something about them. Uh, and he does it before President Trump is sworn in. It, it, it does seem, I mean, neither you nor I as a prosecutor, but it does seem to stray into the exact territory the Logan Act talks about. Yeah, except Colin, I'm, I'm less concerned with that because uh, I think you can make a pretty reasonable case that Flynn, the new national security advisor to be, was, as, as President Trump would say, just doing his job. I think that's, that's reasonable. I think it does need to be looked into. We should know exactly what was discussed. But again, I go back to this. I, I want to know if General Flynn was speaking to any Russian officials during the campaign. Uh, you, 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 you go at and attack and meddle with uh, our election process. Uh, to me, there's almost nothing more, and I don't want to throw out the T word, but nothing more egregious than that. I think that's the heart of this issue. Carlton Larson, uh, this is a question out of the blue, but I think it might be worth talking about. So um, these days, it's kind of common to talk about cyber wars. Um, and and it, I, I think, is true that uh, harm can be inflicted uh, at a digital level in a way that uh, it never, nothing like that ever could be the case before. So as we, as we look at the terrain right now and look at the terrain of the future, uh, we still have that constitutional definition. I don't think any appellate court is going to say that cyber Cyber wars are the same thing as levying war. But is that a, a, an argument for trying to figure out how to look at some of these gray area cases? Or are there existing laws on the books that aren't treason laws, but are, are other kinds of espionage or sedition laws that are going to cover all this stuff? Well, I guess it depends on which type of treason you're talking about. If a, you know, a foreign country launches cyber attack on the United States, I think the United States could easily conclude that that was an act of war and treat it as such. Uh, and then that would um, you know, make that country an enemy for purposes of treason law. Um, for purposes of sort of internal levying of war, someone uh, within the United States launches a cyber attack uh, against, against uh, our government in some fashion. 
Um, I think there's an argument that, that under sort of a modern understanding of the use of force, that, that could be levying of war. Um, but there are also plenty of other statutes that deal with that problem. So my guess would be given the you know, evidentiary hurdles of a treason prosecution, the federal prosecutors would, would simply choose to use other means of going after that person. So, uh, Jeremy, due to you know, your book is, if this be treason, uh, are you wishing you can put out a new edition so that you can uh, do a kind of Trump and Flynn chapter? Is this pressing enough so that uh, you'd like to do an addendum? I uh, certainly kind of wish it would come, it'd come out maybe a year later. It, I think that kind of perfectly illustrates the theme of the book. Um, someone, I believe, earlier mentioned uh, the, the phrase almost treasonous, and that was the almost treason was actually the original working title of the book, just kind of fitting into that theme. And I feel like, uh, you know, Trump and Flynn and Russia and the all the flurry of accusations against them very much fit, uh, you know, that theme of uh, people who did not commit uh, this constitutional definition of treason. But, you know, we're somewhere in some kind of gray area where folks felt like they were being disloyal or seditious. And uh, yeah, if only this had uh, this book had come out a little bit later, that election had been a little bit earlier, I would have had a lot more material to work with for another chapter. Um, Joe Walsh, very quickly, I mean, in some ways, you, you know, you missed the beginning part of this conversation where we talked about how, in fact, the founding of the republic itself was an act of treason against Britain. There's a way in which we Americans do admire rebellious behavior or, or the notion of kind of taking things in, into your own hands if you think uh, uh, th- things are wrong. Uh, I guess the question is, what's the limit of that? Well, there should be a limit. Uh, and again, our, our history is replete with examples of men and women pushing that limit. And then that's got to be decided by a court of law as to whether that was appropriate or proper or not in treasonous or almost treasonous or whatever. Um, You're right. I mean, I've learned something the last 15 to 20 minutes in that I continue to liberally throw out the T word when it comes to potential Trump involvement uh, with Russia in our election. Uh, but gosh, it's something that's got to be looked into. All right. We're going to have to stop it there. I want to thank uh, very much, uh, first of all, Josh Nalea for pulling together this show. Kyle Wolf's been on the board as usual. Jeremy Duda, uh, author of If This Be Treason. Carlton Larson, his upcoming book is Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution. Joe Walsh is a conservative talk show host of The Joe Walsh Show and a former U.S. congressman, a very elucidating uh, talk indeed. Tomorrow on the show, Mark Oppenheimer will host the show. I am going to be a guest. Um, There's a reason for that, but it would take too long to explain right now. I have an idea for sentencing whoever, I mean, whoever gets arrested for treason. Uh, First of all, Rosie O'Donnell becomes the permanent host of The Apprentice, and the television in the cell of whoever gets arrested for treason only shows new episodes of The Apprentice.